This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to a recent message by Pastor Jack Hughes. Jack is a pastor who most recently pastored a church in Burbank, California. He was in Nebraska for our No Compromise Conference. Many of our students at Nebraska Christian had a chance to be there for that weekend and hear these messages from Pastor Hughes, along with many other students from around Nebraska, from youth groups, Fellowship of Christian Athlete groups, and other groups as well. Let's join Pastor Jack with today's message. This last session, we're going to look at the faith of no compromise. We've been learning about this no compromise life, and it really takes not only resolve, not only courage, but faith. Not just that initial faith we need to have to be saved, but that ongoing faith where we continue to trust in God and rely upon God's word to really live in the world as representatives of Jesus Christ. So from Daniel 6, what I want to do is show you again five truths about no compromise faith. So that you can learn these lessons, hopefully apply them to your life, give glory to God, and be blessed because of it. First, you need to live out your faith before men. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. It seemed good to Darius, that is the new king of Babylon, which is a Median king, Darius, to appoint 120 satraps, which we learned were a kind of governing official, over the kingdom. And they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. So you have 120 kind of pretty powerful guys and over them three and over the three the king. And then it says of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them and the king might not suffer loss. So in other words, while the king's doing his thing, they're running the kingdom. Daniel was made one of the three commissioners who oversaw all these high government officials. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Keep in mind that Daniel started out as a prisoner of war. Then was trained to serve the king of Babylon. Then was appointed over all the provinces of Babylon. Then demoted for a time. Then promoted after the fall of Babylon to third ruler in the kingdom. And now is being considered to be the number one ruler in the kingdom under the king. You say, well, why is this happening? Well, all through the first six chapters of Daniel, it becomes very clear that God is behind the scenes blessing Daniel to put him into a position of influence so that God's name can be glorified. And so he's putting his guy into position. Daniel's peers, of course, didn't like it that the king was considering him over them. After all, he was a foreigner. After all, he was a prisoner of war. After all, he wasn't a Babylonian or Mede or Persian. He was a Jew. They also know that Daniel is honest, hardworking, and that as long as he is in charge over them, they won't be able to manipulate the system, take bribes, get kickbacks for personal gain. They've got to get rid of him so they can grow in wealth, power, and influence. Look at verse 4. 
Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Daniel lived such an exemplary life that even under scrutiny, his enemies couldn't find anything against him. That is the kind of life we all need to live. A life where if we had enemies have access to us and sneak around and spy on us and talk to our friends, they could never find any accusation against us. Our character would be so godly. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless it is against him with regard to the law of his God. These men were really diabolical. And be warned, there's a lot of people like this in the world. People who will feel rebuked and convicted just knowing you're a Christian. When they see you abstain from sins they enjoy, every time they see you, they feel rebuked because of it. They're convicted because of the integrity of your life. And then they're going to not like you and want to get rid of you. They will want your position on the team, your job, your influence, because they aren't following the, the Lord, you are following the Lord, and when they see you, they're convicted. They don't really understand what's going on, they just hate you because of the grief you cause them in their heart. They assume you are the problem, but it never dawns on them that they need to get right with the Lord, and that's why you need to tell them about the Lord. But the point I want to make now is that Daniel was not a chameleon Christian. He didn't have his Christian cloaking device on so he could blend into the surrounding pagans in the empire he was now leading. He lived out his faith before everyone. Everyone knew he was a Jew. Everyone knew he was honest, knew he had integrity, knew he prayed. There was no secret. Daniel's peers knew that his business morals were derived from the law of Moses and were impeccable. You could not assail them. His faith wasn't merely intellectual. It wasn't merely profession. He was living it out. Now think about your faith. Is your faith lived out? When the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, a young pastor on the island of Crete, he says this. Likewise, I urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Is that you? Peter, speaking to believers who are being persecuted, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and later in verse 15, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. He goes on to say in verse 15, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence those foolish men. So here it is. 
You have an opportunity to live in such a way that people can see you living for Christ and your life be an example, a testimony, sometimes a rebuke, sometimes the instrument God uses to bring them to Christ. Are you living out your faith on your team, at home, before your parents, at your job, in the classroom, at night, when no one is watching but God. God's grace is sufficient for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior to live for him. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You will never be perfect. But there should be an ever-increasing escalation in your obedience. Though you have times where you're going to blow it, other times you're going to do really good. If you average those out, you should see growth in your life. And people who look at you and watch you and hear you speak, they should be able to see it too. Could someone, by watching your life, tell you're a Christian? And this is really the issue. Do they hear you speak differently than those in the world and act differently to situations? Are they very convinced, man, this person is really serious about their Christian walk? Or do they just say, well, they call themselves a Christian. Everyone knew Daniel was a Jew. Everyone knew Daniel worshipped the God of Israel. There was no doubt in their mind. He was so definitively a follower of God that what happened was is they then plotted a plan to catch Daniel and do away with him because of his devotion to his God. This brings us to our second point, be prepared to be persecuted for your faith. Look at verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement, so they, they counseled together and said, how can we get him? They came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. They're flattering him. Verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and high officials and governors have consulted together, but not Daniel. We forgot to leave that out. Consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. They know Daniel prays three times a day facing Jerusalem. He always has, he always will, and he's not stopping. Look at verses 8 and 9. They pressure the king after buttering up. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, the Medes and the Persians had this interesting law that superseded all other laws, and the law was this. Whenever the king made a law, it could not be revoked. You say, well, why did they do that? Because it made kings very cautious about making laws they shouldn't make. Because once they made a law, everybody had to live with it forever. The commissioners that hate Daniel know this. So they put the 30-day limit on it so that in 30 days it's going to be gone. So that's the way to get around that cannot be revoked. It cannot be revoked unless you stipulate at the beginning it's only going to be enforced for 30 days. So the king then is less hesitant to really think about it and consider the implications of it, so he signs it. Once signed, everybody in the realm would either have to abstain from prayer 
or pray only to the king or pray to somebody else and die for it. That was the options. And we learn another important lesson here from Daniel's example. The more faithful you are at following the Lord, the more persecution and opposition you should expect. The more faithful you are at living for Christ, speaking of Christ, witnessing for Christ, following Christ, the more opposition you should expect. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking, wow, Pastor Jack, then why live for Christ if it's only going to cause you grief? Think about the answer to that. Imagine this. Imagine Jesus telling the Father, listen, I like my glory here with you in heaven. I, I don't want to be born of a virgin. I don't want to become a man. I don't want to be clothed in human flesh. I don't want to live in that sin-cursed world down there. I certainly don't want to be persecuted for three years, falsely accused, tried, and nailed to the cross for something I didn't do by wicked men that I created. I don't want to do that. I'm not going there. Now the question is, why did Jesus do it? Why did he submit to that trial and be scourged and have the flesh torn off his belly and back? Why did he submit to having a crown of thorns nailed upon his head and spat upon and struck in the face over and over again? Why did he do that? A lot of texts we could consider. John 3.16 is as good as any. For God, what? So loved the world. That's why. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's it. Love. Unconditional, inexplicable, undeserved love. God looks down upon unworthy sinners and says, I am going to set my love upon them for their good in my glory. And that's the reason. Jesus suffered to save all who would believe in him so that they would not perish but instead receive the free gift of eternal life and he did it because of love. Not emotional sentimentalism but a willingness to do what is best for someone else even though they don't deserve it. 1 John 4.19 says we love Christ because he loves us. That is why we would suffer for Jesus' sake. Well, when you love Jesus Christ and you realize who you are and what you deserve and you realize who he is and what he did for you, though you are unworthy, it makes you want to serve him. You love him. You want to follow him. You're willing to suffer for his name's sake. The Christian realizes what great sinners they are. You want to be a Christian, a real Christian who lives out their faith? Then you have to expect opposition. You have to expect persecution. Daniel lived out his faith, and Daniel was persecuted. Third, live out your faith fearing God, not men. Look at verse 10. Now Daniel knew that the document was signed, and he entered into his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Notice the text makes it clear that Daniel knew about the injunction. Probably after the king signed it, he goes up into his chamber, and he prays to God like he's always prayed to God. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement. They get the king. They're manipulating the king. They're they're using the king for their own selfish and wicked ends. Look at verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, 
who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And man, they realize we've got Daniel by the throat. Look at verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And the king, at this time, he, he sees the real motives. Get rid of the foreigner you plan on placing over us. That is really the whole deal. And they know the king is trying to rescue Daniel. How do I know this? Look at verse 15. Then these three men came by agreement. Agreement again. They said, okay, we better go talk to the king and remind him so he doesn't try to bend the rules here. They came by agreement to the king and said, now recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Like he didn't know. They're going to see to it that Daniel goes down into the lion pit. Most likely, there's a huge cave carved in the ground with a hole at the top of it, and they lower people down who don't please the king into the lions who are below. Look at verse 17 and 18. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled for him. And believe me, they didn't have electricity then, and they didn't put candles down in that hole. Daniel's in the dark all night with man-eating lions. And the king is very upset because Daniel was his friend. He fasts. Look at verse 19. Then the king rose at dawn and the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the most high God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. He knows that God is in control of men and God is in control of lions. And if God wants him to die, he's going to die. And if God wants him to live, he's going to live. And God wanted him to live and he lived. Look at verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found in him because he had trusted in his God. The key operating phrase there, he had trusted in his God, not men, but God. But what about the bad guys? What about them? Verse 24, the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and wives, into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Game over. And in this instance, the bad guys got their farewell quickly. God will not deliver you from every trial immediately, but he will deliver you from every trial eventually. Whether in this life or the next, you will be delivered and you will be pleased and you'll be glad God did.
5, know that your faith will be rewarded. Look at verse 25 and 28 when Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble for the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. And he delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And it went out to all the Babylonian empire which was now under the Medo-Persians. And all the extended Persian empire as well. God gets the glory because one person lives out their faith. Fearing God, not men. It's amazing. It's amazing how even Darius says God is living, God is eternal, God is sovereign, God rules heaven and earth, and he saves and he rescues even Daniel. Example number one. Then in verse 28, it reads here, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. As an old man, he's still blessed God is blessing him because he's trusting in the Lord. Heaven and hell are real places. Every one of us is right now headed for one of those two destinations. Now, I know a lot of you have probably grown up in Christian homes and maybe gone to church all your life. Some of you probably started going to church nine months before you were born. You've been church forever. You're thoroughly churched. But I just want to tell you a story. I have three children I have a daughter who's 23 and a son who's 21 and a son who's 19, my son who's 21, good kid, always serving. By the time he got in about eighth grade, he started helping out with sound. And by the time I think he was in ninth grade, he started setting up all the sound equipment and then he would go to the first service and then afterwards he would go to the college group and operate the sound and then after Everybody left. He would stay after church for an hour or hour and a half and put it away. He served faithfully. He went to youth group. He got good grades in school. He never rebelled. And, you know, he's my son. And I'm going to make sure his blood is not on my heads. I quizzed him about doctrine. What is repentance? You know, what is sanctification? What is the gospel? What about this? Why about that? We sat around the table. I read them Bible stories. I talked to him about the Bible. We had to discipline him. We shared the gospel with him. There was one thing missing in my son's life that made me concerned. If you asked him Bible questions, he could tell you. He's almost got a photographic memory. So here I am. My wife and I often pray for our kids. We talk about how they're doing. I said, you know, I just don't see in Nate a passion. He's got all the good works. He's, he's good. He's a good kid. I know he's got, he knows the gospel. I know he's serving. I know he's reading his Bible. I know he's going to a small group. I know all of that. But I just don't see that <laughs> You know, I said, maybe it's just me. You know, maybe I'm just that way. I'm a little psychotic, obviously. I don't know. And I was just concerned about it. And then my wife would say, you know, I think he knows the Lord. He's just different. He's got a different personality. And, uh, so I keep praying for him, Lord, if he doesn't know you, save him. If he does, help him to grow and catch fire. You know, those kind of things. So I'm a little ways away on the total other side of the globe in Perth, Australia. And that morning, I, I'm praying and I'm doing a conference over there, and I'm praying. And I say, Lord, if Nate doesn't know you, you know, please bring him to the Lord. If he does, help him catch fire for you. About 10 minutes later, I get a Skype call on my phone from Nate. And it says, no video. And he goes, Dad, 
I'm sorry. He says, there's not enough signal here for video. He says, hold on a second. I'm thinking, man, what's going on? I'm running to the top of the hill to get better reception. It's like, for what? You know, I got to preach, dude. Dad, I became a Christian. My wife and I are like, ah. I said, Nate, what happened? He says, Dad, you won't believe it. He says, I was just at this little college function and there was this guy who was a pastor's kid and he was just giving his testimony. And he said, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and Nate was saying, and I was saying, yeah, so did I. And my dad was a pastor. He thought, yeah, too. And my mom and dad, they stuffed us full of Bible verses and doctrine and taught us the gospel till it was coming out our ears. And Nate's thinking, man, me too. And he says, and I've always been involved in church and going to Bible study and small group and serving in the ministry. And Nate says, I, that's me. And he says, my mom and dad wanted me to go to the master's college, but I didn't really want to go. And Nate goes, me too. And so I decided to work for a year before I went to college, the guy says. And Nate goes, that's what I did. And then the guy says, and I didn't know Jesus. And Nate started listening very intently. And he realized when he heard this guy's testimony, he didn't know the Lord. He knew about the Lord, but he didn't know Christ. So he says, Dad, I just left and I sat under a tree and I gave my life to the Lord. And you know, my wife and I are like, oh, our baby came to Christ. You know, it's like, what are you doing? I got to preach. I'm thinking, man, wow, wow. It's like, I'm trying to process this. You know, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we got 10 minutes. He's trying to tell me all this. It's like, dude, man, I need to talk to you more. So when I finally got back and I said, Nate, speak to me, dude. I got to hear this. I said, man, your mother and I preached the gospel to you at home a million times. And I preached you from the pulpit the gospel a million times. I mean, why didn't that work? He says, I don't know. Maybe God didn't want you to be proud. <laughs> so we used this other guy. Okay. As long as it worked. I said, so what was the deal? And this is what he told me. He says, Dad, I've been thinking about it. He said, I had all this knowledge of the Bible and I was convicted of my sin, but I knew Christians were sinners, so I thought, okay, I'm, my heart doesn't seem all the way fixed, but I wonder if this is just normal Christianity. He said, I had all the knowledge of doctrine and the Bible and the gospel. He said, I knew that inside and out. And so he says, I mean, I believe the Bible is true and God exists, and I believed all those things as factual realities. Then he says, I had over here my good works, my church going, my Bible study attendance, my Bible reading, my service to the Lord. I had this over here. And he said, what dawned on me when this guy was giving his testimony is I had the knowledge and I had the works, but I didn't have Jesus. He says, I know that sounds weird. It just is. He says, I know. I, I know intellectually. I needed to believe in Christ. I even said I did, but dad, I didn't. But he says, this is what's amazing. The moment I repented of my sins and placed my faith completely in Christ alone, not my knowledge and not my works and not my home and not my parents, nothing but Christ alone and asked him to save me. I got up, started walking across campus 
and immediately I could tell I had compassion for people. He says, I was just in college doing my thing, trying to get a good grade so I could go out in the business world and make money. And he says, I just started loving people. And then he cries. A lot of times now when you talk to my son Nate about the Lord, he cries. He never cries, ever. But he does now all the time. All you have to do is say, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Watery eyes. God's got him. And my question to you is this. Does he have you? Does he have you? You've been listening to a message by Pastor Jack Hughes. He's a pastor from Burbank, California. These are messages that were recorded at our No Compromise Weekend that our Nebraska Christian students recently attended. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Thank you.